turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 40. We've been in a series on worship. How many of you have, have enjoyed this series? And uh, a few weeks ago, I had the, the privilege of, of speaking and we, we spoke that day about the beauty of the Lord. And uh, it was such an honor to, to, to minister then. I actually had no idea I'd be ministering again. Uh, uh, <clears throat> pastors out of, uh, in Africa this week and he asked me to, to speak. And it's an honor to um, close out this series before we begin a new year. And today I want to speak from, from the subject, anointed for worship. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are anointed for worship. You know, we're not, <laughs> we are created for worship. We're called to worship. But today I, I want to put an exclamation mark on this point. That you're not just called and you're not just created to worship. But under the new covenant, you're actually anointed to minister to him. Amen. So for just a few moments, we're going to we're going to kind of excavate the scriptures a little bit. And we're going to take a look at the priestly ministry in the old covenant. And we're going to work our way to the new covenant. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to preach today. I'm going to do a mix mix of teaching and preaching. Even when I'm, I always end up preaching because I'm just, you know, Pentecostal like that, you know. But we're really going to spend some time excavating the scriptures. How does that sound? Exodus chapter 40. Before I do that, I want to quote something that I, I quoted last time that I spoke about worship from John Piper. This is what John Piper says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because there are places that worship does not. Isn't that a profound statement? Missions is not the end goal. Worship is. Missions exist because there are still places where worship is not happening. Because how I many you know it's the Lord's will to fill the earth with his glory? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, right? And, and, and he's doing it. He's doing it. But Exodus chapter 40, verse 12 through 15. This is uh, God's instruction to Moses. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. <clears throat> you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. Notice what God says. Anoint Aaron and consecrate him to minister to who? Himself. You know, the priest had uh, many responsibilities and obligations but their main role was to minister to the Lord himself. So God said, consecrate Aaron and his sons. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priest. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Someone say amen. One, one more scripture on this. Leviticus chapter 8 verse 30. This goes into a little bit more detail about their concentration. I mean, their, yeah, their con uh, consecration, sorry. And there's, there's a principle here that I want us to see. It says, then Moses, in verse 30, he's, he's already applied uh, water and he has applied blood. And now it's time for the oil. And in verse 30, it says, then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood, which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron 
on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, his sons, and their garments. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of consecration. As I command, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. What remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. These verses here, that's where we want to key in. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days. Someone say seven days. Until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days he shall consecrate you. As he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded you to make atonement for you. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days. And keep the charge of the Lord. Almost done. So that you may not die. For so I have been commanded. So Aaron, his sons, did all the things that the Lord commanded. Amen. How many of you love his word? When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And God's original intention was actually to make the whole kingdom of Israel His original intention was to make them all priests. He said, I I want you to be a kingdom of kings and priests unto me. He told them that at Sinai. But because they were afraid and they ran away and they basically told Moses, Moses, you guys, you know, you guys, you go up the mountain, you talk to God, just tell us what to do. In other words, God wanted a relationship and they wanted a, they wanted Moses to mediate it because they were too afraid to go close. Right. So God says, "Okay, I've got to have priests who minister to me. So what God does is he says, "Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up Aaron to be the high priest and his descendants who, who are called Levites. This will be a tribe, tribe of priests to me. Amen. Many of us know this. And but here's the thing about the Levites. They they were not. Of course, like I said, everyone who's ever born is called to worship. We're created to worship. From our, I mean, if I, I wish we had time to talk about how amazing the way God created us. Even our being is created in such a way to know and worship God. But the priests were specifically consecrated. To minister to the Lord. So not only were they called, they were anointed. How many know that you can have a calling, but how many know the anointing makes the difference? Because we, you know, all throughout the Bible, we see people doing extraordinary things under the anointing. I mean, look at what Samson could do under his anointing. Under, under the anointing that was resting on Elijah, he outruns horses and chariots, Right? Even Jesus himself, think about how powerful the anointing is. Jesus didn't perform one miracle, not one that we have record of anyway. He doesn't perform not even one miracle until he's anointed by the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan. Even for Jesus, the anointing was the difference maker. The anointing empowers us for service and it helps us to fulfill our assignments and callings. It represents God's literal presence and empowerment. So in this room right now, all across, I mean, there is a diversity of assignments and, and destiny and gifts. How, how many know that's true? 
And the, the anointing that God puts on your life is to fulfill your assignment. It's to enable you to use your gift, right? But here's what I've come to say emphatically today is although the anointing may show up in different ways in our lives, depending on our destinies, here's one way I'm convinced. Here's an anointing that we all share. Here's an anointing that we can, we all walk in or, and that we're all called to, and that's to minister to the Lord. Amen. Just stick with me. We're going somewhere this morning, but notice this, that after Aaron and his sons were anointed, it's interesting what happened is they were told not to leave the tabernacle of meeting for seven days. Someone say seven days. In other words, God didn't rush them out of there. You know, I think that I want to present this this morning that so many times when we think of the anointing, we, our mind automatically goes to, okay, what's my ministry to people? What's my anointing for my assignment? Does that make sense? In other words, when we think of anointing, sometimes we immediately think of, okay, well, I'm anointed to preach. So let me go preach. Or I'm anointed for business. But I think there's a principle here because once they were anointed, he says, remain in the tabernacle for seven days. It was called the tabernacle of meeting, which is literally translated in Hebrew, the tabernacle of his presence. Now that you've got your anointing, don't be in a hurry to rush out there and minister to other people. Stay right here for just a bit. Stay right here. Because although the anointing causes us to be effective in our gifts and callings. How many of you are thankful for the anointing on your life? It is amazing. And we do amazing exploits and things with the anointing. But I, I think the Lord wants us to see this. Our anointing is not, it is primarily first and foremost, not to minister to other people. It's to minister to him first. Remain in the tabernacle of my presence for seven Days. You know why I think this is important? Because when we take this precious oil that's been given to us and we do good things, how many know that ministering to people is amazing? Praying for the sick is amazing. Preaching and operating in your gift and whatever God's called you to do, it's amazing. But here's the thing. If, if you only use your oil for that, I, I, inevitably what's going to happen is there's going to be some burnout. There's going to, there's, there's, there's going to come a time where, where you're feeling dry and you're feeling burnout and you're feeling like, well, wh- wh- why am I feeling this way? I believe it's this is because the oil that we're given, I believe is first and foremost put on us to minister to him. And I believe when we take the oil and minister to him, he touches it and blesses it. And I actually believe there's an increase on our lives. And I also believe that when we use our anointing to first minister to him, that's what produces glory. Because when Moses would go up into that cloud, he would abide there. When the priest would go into the temple, they would abide there. There's something about the anointing that, it, that, that we, we sometimes need to rest in it. And take time to minister to him. And as we do, there's an increase of his presence. And there's, a, there's a, almost like a multiplication of his anointing. How many you know what I'm talking about? And so, yes, we're, we're called to minister to the world. And yes, we're called to do all of these great exploits. But uh, we're first called to minister to him. 
You know, in the last message, I talked a lot about David, and I'm going to reference him here a lot today. As amazing as David's exploits were, giant killer, warrior, king, and, and, and generally speaking, Israel did very, very, very well under his leadership. But they, out of all of those exploits, David considered himself, first and foremost, a worshiper. So much so that he made this statement. And when he made it, he was king. This is an extraordinary. Imagine a king saying this. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. Because David understood something. His primary calling, despite whatever else was on his life, was to be a worshiper. Someone say amen. And so what we've got to begin to see is there's got to begin to be a shift in our mindset towards worship. Not only are we called to it, not only are we created for it, but there's an actual anointing that's been placed on your life, which means you have a ministry just to him. That's separate from everything else that you do. Let me ask you a question. What if we treated worship like it was a ministry that we're faithful to? Stick with me. You guys good? So after the Levites are, are instituted in, in the in, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all those, all those uh, books of the Bible, we get to 1 Chronicles. And David does something very interesting. And Pastor's been speaking to us uh, about this. And I'm just going to like, we're just going to fly over this because we don't have time. David does something very unusual. I think sometimes when we read these stories, we think that he was uh, doing something that may we, maybe we considered obvious or the obvious thing to do. But David, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and by, by bringing the tabernacle to Jerusalem, he was already doing something unique. He was bringing it to a place it hadn't been before. Right. He didn't put he didn't put the temp, his tabernacle in Shiloh or any of the other places where Moses had. He wanted to bring it to the capital of Jerusalem. And then he, he decided in his heart, we've got to bring the ark. Right. So David does something interesting. He sets up what we call the tabernacle of David. Am I right? And there he places the ark. But David does something a little different in his tabernacle that I want us to see this morning. You know, for years, I would read these stories and I would just assume, well, okay, David's tabernacle, it must be just like Moses' tabernacle. And it it, it must be just like the, the temple that his son built. But there was actually some things that were present in David's tabernacle that were very unique. David, whenever the ark was returned to Jerusalem, he immediately set in motion 24 hour, seven day a week worship inside the house of God. He took the responsibilities that the Levites were already given in the book of Leviticus and Exodus. And he basically cranked it up a notch. He set up worshipers. Then before he died, he took it up another notch. Listen to what it says in in 1 Chronicles chapter 23. I promise we're going somewhere. Just stick with me. It says, so when David was old and full of days, he was about to die. He made his son Solomon king over Israel. Listen to what David did. Before he died. He says he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and above. And they in the number of these individuals was 38,000. That's a lot of people. 38,000 Levites. Listen to what David did. Of these 24,000 
were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officers and judges. 4,000 were gatekeepers. And 4,000, listen to this, 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for giving praise. David, what he, what he was doing was he, he was taking something that was already in place, but he was bringing it to another level. And in David's tabernacle, worship was the focus. I want you to see this. In, in David's tabernacle, they did do sacrifices. But in David's tabernacle, the focus was more on worship than sacrifice. He said, burnt offerings you don't delight in, but a broken and contrite heart. David started to tap into a revelation that although sacrifices were necessary under the law, ultimately what God wanted beyond just the, the sacrifice of animals was he wanted worship from the heart of his people. So in David's tabernacle, although the sacrifices continued, the sacrifice that was emphasized in David was the sacrifice of worship itself. Are you tracking with me? Here's the other unusual thing that David did. So he sets up. Basically, 24-7 worship. You know, we sing that song all the time. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. That is literally what was going on in the tabernacle of David. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He had 4,000, not just, not just, these guys were not just any musicians. These were the best musicians in all of Israel. There were 4,000 of them. And guess what? David paid every single one of them. He literally bankrolled, paid for 4,000 worshipers to remain in the temple day and night and just worship. Isn't that incredible? But here is the other unusual thing about David's tabernacle. And it's easy to miss if we're not paying attention. There was no veil in David's tabernacle. Did you hear what I said? See, when we read Tabernacle of David, we think that it, it, there, it was similar to the Tabernacle of Moses in the temple that Solomon would build. But there was a few key differences. And one of them was that when David set up his tabernacle, he, he didn't put a veil in it. And remember that as the Ark of the Covenant was coming back, he danced before the Lord in an ephod that the priest wore. Here's the issue. He's not a Technically, in the natural terms, he was not supposed to be a priest because he wasn't a Levite. David is from the house of Judah. Judah had some awesome gifts and responsibilities, but being a Levite was not one of them. In other words, David was not from the right family to be a priest. But let me suggest something to you. There were three anointings on David's life. The obvious one is king. We know that. The other anointing that was on David's life was that of a prophet. Did you know that the book of Psalms is the most quoted book of the New Testament? The book of Psalms is, is, is so prophetic that if, 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 if we took an entire year to go, verse, we would see that David was operating in such prophetic revelation. You know, when we think of the Psalms, we tend to sometimes just think of, of them just being worship songs. And they are, but they're so prophetic. David was functioning under a kingly anointing, a prophet anointing. But here's the other thing. He was functioning also under a priestly anointing, even though he wasn't from the right tribe. Here's why. Here's where we're going today. The reason why David set up 
a, a tabernacle where there was 24-7 worship. And the reason why he chose to leave the veil out is because he saw into the era of the New Testament church when the veil would be torn and there would be no limitation or, and no restriction to have access to the presence of God. Because here, here's what we got to understand. By David doing these things, it's very bold because he was kind of changing things up. And, and, we, and, and when you're re- really reading the scripture, you say, David, who gave you permission to do this? Who gave you permission to put on the ephod? Who gave you permission to do the job of the Levites? You're not from that tribe. All I know is that God blessed it. And what all I can see from scripture is that David was giving the prophetic insight to see into a day that he wouldn't actually see. But, it, but he was, as it were, the tabernacle of David was a foreshadowing of what was to come. So much so, let, let's connect the dots here, that when Peter got up in the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit fell, this first sermon ever preached in the New Testament after the Holy Spirit fell, David said, I mean, uh, Peter said, um, after he explained to them, don't, you know, they're, they're not drunk with wine. They're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, all that stuff. He says this, this is that which was spoken of the prophet. In the last days, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. David. Did you notice out of all the tabernacles and temples that God could choose to build up again? He said, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Because what David built in his day was a prophetic type and shadow of something that had always been in God's dream. Are you with me today? Just track with me. But that time had not yet come. But David saw it. This is why in the book of Revelation, it refers to the key of David. Right? What was his key? He had insight, prophetic revelation into the messianic age. The age of what Jesus would make available to each and every one of us. But fast forward a little bit. Track with me. And this is the last bit of scripture. And then I'm going to preach for these last few minutes. Are you guys with me? The other night, when I was thinking about this. I was thinking about how the priesthood began and how it began to transition. And I was thinking about the priesthood that we all have in the new covenant. The other night I was laying in bed and I don't know how God speaks to you. You know, God speaks to all of us in different ways. But one of the ways I know that God is speaking to me is when I have repetitive thoughts that won't go away. And this is what I mean by that. Not every repetitive thought is God, obviously, but there will be times where like scripture will come to me and it won't leave me. Right. Even though I'm busy or I'm doing so, I'm not trying to think about it. So the other night, it's like two in the morning. Right. Um, I'd been praying all week. I kind of had a message outlined, kind of a different message. But I I was laying in bed. It's like two in the morning. Can't go to sleep. Um, I can't get John the Baptist off my mind. Which is odd because very few of us probably lay awake at night at 2 a.m. thinking about John the Baptist. Right. I was thinking about, man, I got to go to sleep. I got stuff to do in the morning. But then. Also, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of hungry now. Do we got a snack? I'm thinking, oh, wait, how many days has it been since Christmas? Are those leftovers good? So in the middle of all that, while I'm trying to fall asleep, I can't stop thinking about John the Baptist. This is so strange. Like, I'm like, I love John, but why are you in my head right now? You know what I mean? Like, respect, but I'm trying to go to sleep, right? So I'm like, okay, let, uh, let me listen. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me listen. What are you trying to say to me? I, I really felt like the Holy Spirit asked me, do you know who John was? I said, okay, let, let me go open up the scriptures. 
So I go to Luke chapter 1 to where we know the story of when the angel comes to visit Zacharias, right? His father. And it hit me. I, I, you know, I've been reading this for years and I, I just didn't pay attention to this part. We know that John was a prophet. That's the obvious part. But did you know that John is of the tribe of Levites? His dad, Zacharias, was a priest in the temple during the time of Jesus. Not only was his dad a Levite, his mother was a direct descendant of Aaron. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 1, we don't have time to read it. I encourage you to go read it. In Luke chapter 1, the week that the angel comes and visits Zacharias, guess what Zacharias is doing? It was his turn that week to minister in the temple. Based upon the responsibilities that David gave them in 1 Chronicles chapter 23. Remember I told you David kicked it up a notch and he he basically ramped up the responsibilities of worship. The week that the angel came to Zacharias, it was his week to burn incense in in the temple. Let me translate that. Basically, it was his week to worship. When the angel came to Zacharias, he was worshiping in the temple. When he had the visitation, he was not at home. He was not in the field. He was inside the temple. And the Lord, I mean, and the angel came to him and prophesied John to him. I don't think it was a coincidence that he was worshiping when the angel came to him. Because they had been praying for a son, number one. And obviously God had a plan. But here's what I also know. The worship Always prepares the way for the prophetic. Anytime there there is worship and there is a place where worship is taking place, the prophetic can easily come. I I believe that God chose Zacharias and his wife for a specific reason. The Bible says they walked blameless before the Lord. But Zacharias was a priest and he was faithful to minister before the Lord. So check this out. Why is that significant? Because remember what the promise was? Aaron and his sons, Aaron and his descendants would all be Levites. That means that John was a Levite. That means that while he was in the wilderness, by birthright, he could have been serving in the temple. Why wasn't he in the temple? Because a change was coming. When when Jesus came to John to be baptized, there's a lot more happening than what originally meets the eye. Can we read it really quick? Matthew chapter three. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to me. So now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. And suddenly a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. What's obvious about this story is that John's a prophet. We all know that, right? He's the voice crying in the wilderness. John represents the last prophet of the old covenant. We know that, right? In fact, Jesus says this about John. Of men born of women, there's no greater prophet than John. And what's really unique about that is John only had one message. He didn't have elaborate 
things like Elijah or Elijah. He didn't have all some of the crazy stuff they all had. But yet Jesus said he's the greatest prophet. He only had one message. Prepared in the way of the Lord. But not only did John represent the last prophet of the old covenant. He represents as a Levite. The end of the Levitical priesthood. And the beginning of the priesthood of Melchizedek. When John was in the water and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It wasn't just his prophetic insight. The Levites were responsible for examining the sacrifices. When you would bring a sacrifice to the temple, you couldn't just bring any animal. The Levites would literally inspect it to make sure that it was spotless and blameless. So when John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God who... Who takes away the sins of the world. He's not. He obviously is speaking prophetically. But as a Levite. He is saying this is the sacrifice. He's coming. And, and remember when John says. Later on. They come to John and say. John. Everyone's going to hear Jesus preach. No one's coming out to hear you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says don't worry about it. I must decrease. So that he can increase. And a lot of times. We actually pray that prayer. Lord let me decrease. So you can increase. And usually we're talking about. Um, you know, ourselves and, and it's a good prayer, but we need to understand John, John, when he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. John was not talking about his flesh or any issues or nothing like that. John was literally saying my ministry has to vanish because John's operating under an anointing that's coming to an end. His anointing had an expiration date because he represents the last prophet and the last generation of Levites because the new high priest was on the scene. And John said, don't worry about it. I must decrease so that he can increase. He wasn't talking about his flesh. John wasn't dealing with fleshly issues. He was actually very obedient, a very obedient prophet. He lived in obedience to the Lord. He was saying, my ministry has to decrease because there's a new day. Are you tracking with me? What was this major transition? Listen to what David says in Psalms 110. And this is where I'm going to preach. Can I preach for 15 minutes? 10, 12 minutes? David, seeing into the future, said this about Jesus. The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. He's speaking of Jesus. Because in that verse, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Who's seated at the right hand of God? Jesus. And he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 says about Jesus. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, yes, although during Jesus' time there was a high priest operating in the temple named Caiaphas, there was an expiration date on that ministry. Although John was a Levite, he knew that there was an expiration on, on their ministries because the new was emerging. And Jesus, when he was anointed at the River Jordan, was anointed to be Messiah, not only to be Savior, but also to become our new high priest. Hebrew says that when Jesus was crucified, he then took his blood into the heavenly tabernacle and poured it on the mercy seat. And what happened in earth? The veil was split. After Jesus' crucifixion, 
and after his blood was spilt and poured out, only then was the veil torn. What David built in the tabernacle of David was a prophetic shadow of what was to come. And he saw into the order. You know what I believe? You know, we say, well, where did David's authority come from? He wasn't. A, how did he do all this stuff? You know what I believe? I believe he had a revelation of the true priesthood that was eternal that had yet to emerge, but was now emerging onto the scene. And here's why this is so powerful for, for me and you. Revelation 1, 6 says this. And God has made us kings and priests. Did you hear me this morning? Someone say, I'm a king and I'm a priest. See, the Bible says Jesus is the king of kings. See, we always think that that just means the earthly kings who are out there. No, no. He's also talking about you because he's made you a king and a priest. He's the king of kings and the high priest of priests. He's the high priest, but he has brought us into this priestly ministry and made us priests so that we can be anointed to minister to God. That means this, that you no longer have to belong to the right family. You no longer have to be born under the right circumstances. You no longer, we no longer have restrictions or limitations or, 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 or restrictions to access to the presence of God. Because of what Christ did on Calvary, me and you have access to the throne room. But not only that, not only that, not only did he call us to worship, create us for worship in the new covenant. He took it up to another level. And when he gave you the Holy Spirit and put the precious anointing on your life, I'm here to tell you, I don't know what you're anointed to do, anointed for business, what gifts you have. All I can tell you is this. One thing I do know that we all have is that we've all been anointed to minister to him. Because you know why? It says he's made us priests and kings and priests. their first and foremost responsibility was to minister before the Lord day and night in his temple, in his house. Turn your neighbor and say, I'm a priest. Listen to what I'm almost done. Listen to what uh, first Peter two, nine says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. First, Peter says this coming to him as uh, coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God. That's Jesus. But he says this. You also are living stones and you are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Jesus made it abundantly clear in his ministry. Destroy that temple. You know, that the temple is going to be destroyed. And he told him, destroy this temple in three days. I'll rebuild it. Right. He was building a new temple and he was establishing a new priesthood. These, this temple is not made by hands. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you've got to start to think of yourself like this. He says, you're a stone. I'm a stone. We're all stones. Right. Why? Because that's what the temple's made of. When we come together, what happens when you stack stones on top of stones and put stones beside stones? When we come together, listen, I want you to look around this room. See, we get so used to each other. Sometimes we see each other, but we forget who we are. You know, look around this room right now. I mean, literally look around at it. You know what you're seeing? You're seeing the house of God. 
Because when we come together, we are living stones. And what we do is we literally become the habitation of the presence of God. So that's why when people just the other day, someone said, you know, why do I have to be a part of an assembly? Why do I got to be faithful to a church community? Why do I got to be, you know, why can't I just have relationship all by myself with Jesus? You know what I said? I said, you can have relationship with Jesus all by yourself. But you know what? There's a unique expression of the presence of God when we come together that you can't have by yourself. Because by yourself, you're just a stone. But when we come together, we're a temple. We actually are the habitation of the presence of God. Listen to what his word says. He says that he inhabits the praises of his people. You know what that literally means? That where there's worship and praise, the literal translation is that God will put his throne in that place. He'll come and sit. So when we come together, see, this, this is so important because you've got, to, you've got to start seeing this. That when you come to church on Sunday, you're not just coming to church on Sunday. You're not just warming a seat. No, no, no. We are the house of God and we've come here to host a habitation of his presence. You're not just coming here just because you don't have nothing better to do. Why? But, but what I'm saying is we, we've got to come into this place where revelation of our participation in this, this plan that God has. And this, when you walk into this door, you're coming in as a priest with an assignment. Because remember, I told you, you're not just called. You actually have a ministry to the Lord. Could you imagine being in David's tabernacle with 4,000 musicians. How wonderful would that have looked like? But guess what? Every single Sunday, we come here and hundreds and thousands of us are together. And I think that we seldomly look around and think, how amazing is this? Because out of each person is coming worship. And, and what God is doing is he's fitting us all together. And we are literally housing a manifestation of God. Wait, okay. Let me, let me propose something to you as I close, as, as I'm getting ready to close. What would happen if within the context of a church, the majority or if all of the members of that community came to church, taking their responsibility as priests seriously? This is what I mean by that. I'm thankful that when I come here, I get ministered to. But what would happen if I make this thing not about me? Because when, once I understand what my primary anointing is, my primary anointing is to minister to him. See, when I understand that, then I can get over myself. I don't like what they're singing today. I don't like who's preaching. Can, can I be frank? And this is where you all have to forgive me. We all need to get over ourselves. Because you know what? This song's not for you. It's not for you. It's for him. And I think the problem sometimes is this, is that we're looking around too much and we're looking at other. And listen, in my opinion is, is that when you come into this place, if our focus is to minister to him, we should be so lost in, in his presence and so focused on him that I don't see all the distractions around me. I, listen, I got preferences too. I got preferences, but you know what? I got to get over my preferences. You know why? Because I didn't die for this church. I didn't die for this house. He died. And the question I need to be asking is what's the worship that he wants to hear? What's the sound he wants to hear? What is he looking for? This is why, you know, 
And when I meet with other young pastors and they're sitting stuff, you know, uh, there's, there's a group on part where young pastors, we get together and talk. And, and one of the things I'm really adamant about um, when, whenever I'm speaking to other young leaders is I'm thinking, listen, don't ever give into the temptation of diminishing worship in your church. Don't ever cut worship short. If you got to cut everything else, cut everything else you can short. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't ever touch worship. Because no matter what we think, listen, our first primary anointing is to minister to him. Worship, the church exists for worship. Period. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In other words, what he's doing is his, his end intention is to build a church that resembles the tabernacle of David. Where 24-7, there's, there's spiritual sacrifices going up of praise and worship from a group of people who understand their anointing to function as priests. I tell you, when I really started to see this, it shifted my ministry to the Lord. Because then I realized, wait, I mean, I'm just not called. Like, I don't know if this trips you out, but this trips me out. I'm not just called to worship. He put an anointing on me to minister to him. And here's the other strange thing that always racks my brain. Why does he want me to minister to him? What can I give him? All I can tell you is this. Is that's how God designed us. There's something about our affection. There's something about our worship. There's something about our attention. That he loves. I don't ask me why. I don't know. But I'm so glad he loves me. And he desires. And I'm so glad that he's jealous for his people. So I'll ask again, what would it look like if we came in here, not, not just out of routine, but by revelation, by understanding, man, I'm a, I'm, I'm a priest coming to join other priests to host God. This is my ministry. Despite whatever other ministry I have, this is my ministry. So we're not just singing songs. We're not just reading. I mean, we're not just reading words off of the screen. We are ministering to the Lord himself. And I'm telling you, where there's a church, and I'm so, in th- our church is one of the churches in this city, I believe that God has raised up to live this, this call. But wherever there's a church, where there's a community, a group of people who understand this call to worship, I believe that's the place where there's no limitation. Because we should never underestimate the power of worship. Worship is the vehicle that God uses to, for heaven to invade earth. I'll give you an example, and, and I'm done. The Philippian jail. Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, right? I mean, their back's laid open. They've been beaten. They're, they're handcuffed. I mean, how many know if there's ever a time to complain, that's the time, right? Puts things into perspective, right? It makes what I was complaining about this morning really silly. Couldn't find my keys. Paul and, and, and Silas are in jail, but they're not the only ones in there. There's a jail full of people and there's soldiers. But the Bible says that they begin to sing praises. If I could sing right now, there's a song on my head. I, I wanted to you know, sing it, but I can't carry a tune, so I'm going I'm I'm to spare you. But they begin to sing praises. Check this out. God shakes the prison. 
He frees them. Here's the most amazing part of this story. But they're not the only ones that get free. The whole prison gets free. Wait a minute. Here, no, no, hold on. Here's the other thing that racks my brain. The rest of them are pagan. They're Romans. They don't believe in Jesus. You know how we know? Because a few minutes later, they get saved. Here's the point. Their worship shook the prison and brought freedom to people around them who weren't trying to worship. This is how we, you know, like the song, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. The darkness that I see is just a shadow of your wings. Worship shifts the atmospheres of not only churches, but cities and regions. And I'm telling you where there's a group of people who understand their mandate to host the presence of God. There's no limitations in that place. There's no, when God visited here in 1996, one of the hallmarks of that was the miracles. The, 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 the powerful part of what happened here in 96 was most of those miracles occurred by people not being prayed for. They were simply in the presence of God. But you know why? Because during 1996, the, the entire focus was on right, knowing Christ, making him known. The revelation that God imparted to our church in that season was that we are to minister to God. We are to seek his face and not his hands. So check this out. As we mini- I was six years old, but I'm going to throw myself in there. As we were ministering to the Lord, his face, that's that because that's what our ministry is to him. It's to his it's face to face, heart to heart. As we ministered to his face. The glory came. Because, see, he's given us some oil. What are we going to use that oil for? There's a lot of good things. But when we use that oil to go back into his presence, see, His presence is like a fire. What happens when you bring oil into a flame? The secret to not burning out in ministry or life is not to use all your oil on everything else. The secret to to not burning out is to waste your oil in his presence. Because that's what produces the glory. That's what produces the manifestation. I want to encourage you today. I know you probably already knew a lot of this, but I don't want you to ever think about your worship life the same. You're a priest. You're, there's an anointing on you just to minister to him. Among all the other things you have, how crazy is that? Let me end with this, this caution. This, this call to worship, it's a lifestyle, right? We know that. The, it, it, I always tell people it's like, a, it's like a coin. You know, the U.S. Treasury, whenever they issue a coin, if you get a coin that has heads but it has no tails, you can't technically use that for exchange because it's considered defective, right? You got heads and your tails. You know, that's what our relationship with God is like. You know, one side is your own relationship with the Lord. The other side is your collective relationship with the Lord through the body. So, yeah, we have our we have our corporate expression and then we have our individual expression. And here's my caution to myself and all of us here about our personal intimate times with the Lord. Don't let the busyness of life keep you from the ministry of ministering to him. 
Listen. One of the things I one of the things I'm greatly concerned about for my generation is that technology and other things have so rewired our our brains that it's hard to focus. You know, it's hard to you know people you know they want like express worship. Give me express church, right? And this is just what I've learned about the Lord. Intimacy takes time. Now, God don't want us sitting here all day. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but we got to take time sometimes just to be in his presence. Not, not just corporately, but at home. You know, my wife can always tell when I haven't been spending time with the Lord. She'll literally say, you need to go have your Jesus time. You know why? Because I'm so much better when I've been with him. And if we're not careful, let me, let me also give you this other warning. Don't let ministry keep you from ministering to him. I'm telling you that ministry can be one of the most hazardous things to your walk with God. I trust me. Busyness, all these things, you know, the whole Mary Martha thing. But make up in your mind. You're going to be a priest. And you're going to, as, as much as God's grace with his grace and with your determination, you're going to be faithful to that anointing and that ministry that he's given you to minister to him day and night. Whether it's on the way to work, you know, I know we're busy, but on the way to work in your car, instead of listening to the, you know, I, I love to listen to radio. But sometimes instead of listening to that talk show, spend that 30 minutes worshiping. Cut your lunch break in half. Eat quick. Take the other 30 minutes to worship him. Because here's the other powerful thing. When you come out of that, you never know how you worshiping is going to affect the rest of your day. I'm telling you, those people who like to take time to spend time with the Lord, trust me when I tell you, there's a residue on you and people will pick up on it. You'll be surprised at the things in your life that start changing. I had a lady one time actually literally tell me in a public place I, that week I'd spent a, an extended time of like fasting and I was with the Lord. I walked, this is a true story. I walked into a place and a lady came up to me and she said, your face is glowing. She literally told me that. And I freaked out. I went to the bathroom. I couldn't see it. I was like, I, I had heard stories and I, I've seen, I've actually seen this in other people too. She goes, I don't know. But she goes, when I saw you, you were glowing. And I said, all I can tell, I was like, I can't see it, but if you, I said, all I can tell you is this. I've, I've been spending a lot of time with Jesus. He rubs off on you. He rubs off on you. I'm just, stand with me to your feet. How amazing is it that we can come before him anytime we want? If we had been born just a few thousand years ago, we would have had to stand outside in our tent and watch the Levites go in and enjoy the presence of the Lord while we watched. But now we all go in together. How amazing. 